It's interesting how like 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. it's like we didn't have the social media tools we had to build our own brand. You couldn't create your own Spotify campaign. And like yep. also to have the brand connected where people knew that like if ICP and Jump Steady co-signed you and loved you, it meant that it had authenticity. So you, so all these things going in the pre like web two social media world you had going for you to give you all this momentum. And it's interesting how you recovered from things like this that weren't per- ideal. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, it's so much, it's so much of it was contextual. Yo, it's hatchet chat with lures and snacks. You juggalo homies talking hatchet tracks. This hatchet beats and hatchet wraps. The whole catalog's packed full of classic gems. And we talk about them all on, on hatchet, hatchet chat. chat. Friends. Welcome to another episode of Hatchet Chat. We have a legendary Michigan rapper this week. This is a dude I've known about for years, and I had the uh, privilege of chopping it up with him at the gathering. Um, I have his his psychopathic hunting season oh, CD yeah, out. Oh, yeah. it's, it's rare. This is rare as hell, but it's like... It's great. It's a classic album. He's put out so much great stuff independently. And so we're going to chop it up talking about hunting season, talking about his new shows, his new albums, Natural Born Killers, everything. So um, let's snacks. Let's welcome V Sinister to Hatchet Chat. Woo! Welcome, brother. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Appreciate that. Thanks. Hell yeah, dude. And uh, I know, you know, you're you're a busy man. You're killing it with the shows. You are very prolific. We're going to talk about, you know, all the dope releases in your discography. And you're recently back from The Gathering. That's how you guys kind of met and connected. So tell me about that, man. What was this gathering like? This gathering, uh, I will say this particular one was pretty humbling for me for a variety of reasons. But it was exactly what I needed to give give myself the adrenaline shot. needed to push forward and just keep it moving. Like there's no, a lot of shows and festivals I did, but I will say this this gathering was an eye opener. I needed to keep pushing to where I want to take um, myself and my team that formed a company of Stormroom too. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Met a lot of cool people, MC Lars in particular too. As luck would have it, MC Lars was in the contest. Uh, well, not in the contest, was judging the contest. I was supposed to be me, him, and um, Jump Steady. Jump Steady couldn't make it for a variety of reasons. So, who did they replace him with? Uh, was it Shaggy the Airhead or? Yeah, Shaggy the Airhead. And uh, yeah, Shaggy the Airhead was helping out, and then um, Devereaux was DJing for the for the battle. Yeah. Yeah. That was tight. It was a great trio, and I remember you were giving some of. The, oh, and then DJ Clay was hosting it, which was tight. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, DJ Clay go away. I, I remember DJ Clay was telling me he remember when I was signed a psychopathic. He was in the audience as a fan at a particular. I think, I think it might have been a Big Balls Christmas party, and then some years later he became their off and on DJ. And I was like, wow, I'm freaking old. And you were in the audience, 16, 17 years old, and now you're their DJ going on the road with him, doing this and doing that. <laughs> wow. I mean. You you sent us a lot of really cool, um, a lot of background, a lot of like f- files and pictures of that era. You had that really great image of you. It was from like it was from the newspaper, and it was like 2003, and you had your mask on. It was like a whole front cover story about you. Um, oh. 
Tell us about that. Cover story. That was 2002. And the funny thing about that so child was a lot of bad things was going on between me and my oldest child's mother, my ex-girlfriend at the time. And you think that you just newly signed to the biggest label in the underground of Wicked Rap scene and things should be going great, but it was horrible then. It was, ooh, every time I see that cover, it reminds me of that time. Matter of fact, the day that that news article was released, I think um, me and my ex got into it. Um, it was at some uh, some place she was at, and we got into it. And I was just going through the motions and thinking, okay, I just got signed to a multi-million dollar independent label, and I'm arguing my ex-girlfriend, and we just broke up. I should be happy, and I'm not. But it was all fuel for the fire. Um, it was a sourceful Many of the topics I was addressing early on in my career and just helped fuel the drive to propel me to where I'm at right now, for better or for worse. You, um, yeah, that it's interesting how like you can have all the greatest things happening, right? You feel like the industry is on your back, but like if there's that inner turmoil or things going on around you, it's really hard to be present and appreciate it. And it's interesting how like yeah. what January fourteenth, two thousand three hunting season dropped and it's an interesting story because like you were you won an mc contest and you were and so that you got your deal through that like do you want to talk briefly how that went down or like what led to that all right uh i don't know how i, I would try to make it as brief as possible i'm notorious for being long-winded and going on so i would try to do it in segments to keep it short so are we, man that's what hatchet chat's about <laughs> <laughs> All right, 2002, this was my first time going to a gathering. This was um, the third annual gathering in Peoria, Illinois. I heard they were announcing an MC contest to find the newest artist of Psychopathic Records. So, again, me and my ex-girlfriend got into it because some bill money. I was supposed to pay. I mean, it wasn't like we were too far behind, so I took some bill money, bought a ticket to go to Peoria, Illinois gathering. And they had an MC contest there. Me and my team at the time, we were part of, part of Fallen Entertainment. We rolled up there, and basically, I think it might have been a few other people's first time at that gathering, too. Maybe one or two other people's not their first time, but uh, I'm going to this convention center in Peoria, Illinois. A lot of juggalos around, painted faces. I was taken back. Like, I mean, I was involved in the wicked rap scene. Prior to that, for some years, but this is my first time being at such a large event where you just see tons and tons of people who like the same music you do. So at Peoria, Illinois, they had an MC contest. My sole focus was that MC contest, watching all the performers there, seeing who did what, how the crowd was responsive to each act. So uh, the it was a three-day event, and the I think it was Friday. Friday, I was there watching all the people perform, and I'm like, okay, it's some pretty good talent here. Some not so good talent, but it's all subjective. People like what they're going to like. And I figured out, okay, this is what I got to do. So Friday night, I remember watching Twisted perform, and I'm thinking, okay, if I want to I wanna perform in front of these people, I need to see how they respond to a psychopathic guy because this would be my first time seeing any psychopathic act performed live. And I looked at what they did on stage, how the audience responded, and I took a few cues from there, like jumping up and down, crossing the stage, in, engaging the audience. And I took some of the cues I've seen Twisted do that Friday night. 
Saturday afternoon was I signed up for it, got on stage, and I, I remember had so many butterflies in my stomach. And once again, it's one of the things that happen that there's so much going on in your life, but you try to keep it under control to keep it going. So then they call our name, we go out there, perform. The energy in the place was amazing. It was at least about a thousand people in that area watching MC wow. contests. And I'm thinking, this is a lot of people. I mean, before I performed different shows, but never anything over a thousand. I'd be lucky if it was anything over maybe 100 or 200, but the energy was crazy. It motivated me. I went from one end of the stage to the other, trying to interact with everybody, doing exactly what I seen a psychopathic artist do. After we got through performing, I'm thinking I gave them my all. I did what I could. Walked off the stage to the back area, and all of, you know who Legs Diamond is, right? Rich Merle. Mm. Yeah, he was one of the judges for the MC contest. And I walked back there, and I remember him saying, Damn, that was dope. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, oh, okay, all right. So I'm listening to him give his commentary on our performance, saying that we did real good. And I'm getting a lot of dap and congratulations from everybody saying that. I was a shoe-in to go to the finals, and I'm thinking, okay, all right. So everybody else was still going through the audition process, and I'm just nervous. And the crew I was with at the time was asking, did I want to go see any other events? I'm like, no, I want to check out the other people because I'm not going to be that arrogant thinking, okay, I'm, I'm a for sure going to win, so I don't got to worry about the competition. No, I want to see what they do because I did good. According to Rich Merle, I – was one of the best there, but it could have been slightly better. I have to see that. So I stayed for the Saturday auditions, Sunday afternoon auditions, and then they wrapped up the auditions. The judge at the time was uh, Legs Diamond, Fritz the Cat, and a guy named John. Um, I don't know what John did in particular, but I remember he was a judge there. So they announced MC contest was over. They was going to have a top three pasted in a far a faraway wing on the other side of the um, auditorium. So they they took strips of paper and put each name on there, and it was putting them one by one. So the first name that they put up there was uh, um, a guy named McNasty. You, I think you probably seen him at this year's gathering, too. He performed, I want to say, on the second day, maybe the second day, uh, McNasty. Real cool guy. He's also in Natural Born Killers, too. Then the next people they put up was a group called Rotten. And then I'm thinking, okay, I did not come all this way to Peoria, Illinois to lose. I hope I got this. I hope I do. I'm hoping everybody was on pins and needles, nervous. They put the last trip of paper up there. Be sinister. I was like, whoo! I, I was happy. But it wasn't over yet, though, because it was just, we made it to the finals. We uh, succeeded in auditions, made it to the finals. So I told them, all right, no time to celebrate yet. We got to get our game faced on. So the day passes on, and um, the finals get here. Ooh, that was something else. That was something else. Ooh, man, I I'm getting memories flooded back right now. So I performed Morningstar, and there was a guy named Anonymous who performed, too. I think he did an acapella, but he didn't end up making the finals. And he asked, could he roll without one? And he had um, painted up face, too. Now, mind you, this is no hate toward Juggalos. I want Juggalos to understand that that's going to see this chat. There is no hate toward Juggalos. It's just like 
I don't, I try not to pander to a particular audience because I believe the audience can see through any attempts at pandering, and it would have went against me if I would have tried to pander. So I told him because when he performed, he performed with face makeup on and whatever, clown paint and everything. And I told him you can roll with me and everything, but if you're gonna roll with me and help me up on stage, you gotta take the uh, face paint off. No face paint because we're not doing no pandering here. We're going up there as what we do and present it to the audience. So he he washed the face paint off, got straight. And then when it was time to go on the finals, my homeboy Dantastic was up there. He was up there. And this is the first time I've seen Dantastic so live. He helped me hype many years before, but it was more like a walk around on stage, backup vocals here and there. But this dude had a Dragon Ball Z shirt on, opened up and everything. He running back and forth across the stage. And I looked like, damn, where'd you get this energy from? Oh, man. They were hyped up. Anonymous was throwing CDs out to the crowd, getting the crowd hyped. Dan helped me perform back and forth, and I'm just wearing my uh, leather duster, uh, a military camo hat, black camo, black boots, everything, just morning star. And the crowd loved it too. And here comes the here comes the um, decision. So we performed, and I think they didn't have like how we kind of got organization to what we was doing at the MC contest there and you can get a clear-cut winner here, it, it was kind of up in the air. So we all performed way back there waiting for the judges to do their thing, announce the winner, pick a winner, or whatever. And basically, we're just waiting. The crowd just chanting, uh, you know, they want to see something. So what happens is um, they had, I think it was one of the stage hands back stage had a mic in his hand. Uh, one of the people from Rotten grabbed the mic, ran on stage, started freestyling, and basically the stagehand got mad because, you know, there was no plan on nobody going back out there to freestyle or anything like that. So he got mad at Rotten, but they got that under control. And then um, the crowd was up there chanting, freestyle, freestyle, freestyle. And I was like, okay. Uh, I used to be in freestyle battles when I was in the military because they had them at um, NTC in California and also on the installation where I was at in Fort Riley. But I'm thinking, uh, no, I want to take this away because I, I can freestyle, but it's not my wheelhouse, though. I want to keep my strengths in here because, I, like, as I said, I not come all the way to Peoria, Illinois, my first time at the gathering to lose. So the stagehand handed me the mic and... He wanted to know, did I have any words to say to the audience out there? So I was like, I grabbed the mic, and the audience was saying freestyle, but I put my hand up, tried to get the audience to quiet down. So I went into a long monologue about, you know, you've seen the three uh, top acts up here perform, and next year you'll probably be wearing one of them shirts, and it's up to you, audience, to pick the person you thought brought it the hardest and entertains you, and and so on. Just going to a nice, I can't say long monologue, a brief one, but just pretty much the get the audience to pick the artist that they want to go with. So I told him, I was going to bring up the acts out here, and when I place my hand overhead, I want you to scream aloud and cheer for who you thought um, done it, who you want to be on Psychopathic Records, who you want to wear their shirts and buy their merchandise and everything next year. So the first person I brought out was McNasty, put my hand overhead. Whew, I tell you, when that crowd, they went ballistic. They love McNasty. I was like, oh, oh. In my head, I'm keeping calm. I'm keeping my composure on stage. 
in my head, I'm freaking out like, oh my God, no, I did not come this way to lose. I did not come all this way to lose. But I kept together. I was like, okay, you know, still two X, rotten to me. And then I called rotten out there. I placed my hands over their head. Crowd just moves them. And they start chanting Beastie Boys. And I'm thinking, oh, well, okay, we know rotten is not taking first place here. So it comes down between me and McNasty. So then I was about to announce myself, but McNasty uh, uh, wanted the mic. And then he stands next to me, he puts his hand over my head, said, how about my boy, Be Sinister? Same initial response Chris got. His real name is Chris. Sorry about that, McNasty, when you see this interview. Uh, McNasty, I got the same initial response McNasty did, but what separated that response, uh, what separated our applause was that at the end of the response I got, they started chanting, Sinister, Sinister. Sinister, and I was like, okay, that's my moment. He sees that right there, grabbed the mic, and I said, the Juggalos have spoken. Handed the mic back to the stage hand, walked off, and let it go from there. Stage hand said, well, there you go. This year's winner is Be Sinister, and I fell out backstage. I was on my knees crying like, I don't own psychopathic records, let me tell you. As I said, I don't, I don't do any pandering. I don't say juggalo a lot in my music or anything like that. Not that I don't listen to the music because I've been listening to um, Insane Clown Posse Eshaan since 1991. Before Insane Clown Posse, it was Eshaan back in 1990. Then around 1992 came Carnival of Carnage and Beverly Kills. And then I got into the back catalog and became a fan since then or whatever. But let me tell you, when I was crying on my knees, like I can't believe it. I'm on Psychopathic Records with Eshawn, Twisted, ABK, man, and Zug Island at the time. Oh, it was so wonderful. That's the shit. That's an amazing story, and it's cool to hear it firsthand. And uh, it makes sense that the Juggalos responded so strong, especially with those influences you just mentioned, because, you know... We're going to talk about, you know, your new stuff as well, but we're we're doing a bit of a deep dive as well on Hunting Season, the dope album you went to release on Psychopathic after winning that contest. And man, like like I said, it makes sense the Juggalos responding because, dude, like, it's just got that Michigan, you know, Detroit. I know you're from Saginaw, but it got, like, it does have that, like, old school wicked shit sound to oh, like yeah. a T, you know? So if, I, I was going to ask you that, like, were you influenced with some of that, those those horror rap artists that were coming out of Detroit? And that makes sense. You mean as far as my overall musical career or just the album in particular? Well, uh, both. Like, what, what are your overall influences and then what kind of influenced the hunting season? All right. My overall influence musically, they're pretty eclectic. I will say first and foremost, uh, stylistically, as far as the wicked shit goes, would be Esham and ICP, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Esham and ICP, Eastside Hoes and Money. Um, the the way I do music, per se, because there's there's a lot of video game influence I take up in there. Yuzo no. Koshiro, Nobu Uematsu, uh, Michiru Yamani, um, I, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, but Akira Yao, Yao Mo. Yamaki, uh, he did the soundtrack for Silent Hill. 
well, either early Silent Hills one, two, and three. I think he did um, some music for the motion pictures too. A lot of video game music. I love video game music. I hope we can address that too. And this is not pandering. I did not do this on purpose because it's MC Laws. I, I talked to him about that too. <laughs> now, Hunt Season, the influences there are the same. ICP, Eshawn, but what happened with Hunt Season was it was already done. Now, the deal was I go to the Lotus Pod, record music there, and make tracks there. They released it, and they'll see what happens. But uh, before, even before the gathering happened, I released my debut album, Sins of an Angel, in May of 2002. And while that was making the rounds and I was doing shows, I already had hunting season in the works. But back, the original name of hunting season was The October Game, a Ray Bradbury influence. Um... So I already had the tracks laid out, and basically, with the tracks, I, I composed the tracks, and I, I did the tracks. I, I'm pretty sure you heard about it. If you didn't, the tracks were done on the PS1, and this this is how they were done on the PS1. I did my debut album, Morningstar, Sins of an Angel. There's a couple tracks on there that were done in the studio, but for the most part, I, I did the tracks on the PS1. And how that happened was I used to be with a company called Ghetto Records before striking out on my own with Fallen Entertainment. Um, that's where I did all the tracks composed. They had the keyboards and everything up at the studio, but we came to a partner of the ways, and Ghetto Records went the way I went my way. Unfortunately, unlike today, technology where you can get you a MIDI um, master keyboard, computer, import styles, and do all that, Back then, everything, the majority of stuff, I mean, even though they started out digitally at the end of the 90s, going to the early 2000s, we were still using a lot of analog gear and everything. So basically, the only analog gear I had was, um, what was it? It was a Alisa's QR, QS synth module and a keyboard that had MIDI out, uh, in and output on the back, but I didn't have no full-on studio or anything like that to do any mixing. So the only thing I had was uh, a game that my cousin introduced me to when I came back from Fort Raleigh, Kansas, several four years in active duty. The MTV Music Generator wanted to give a shout-out to Codemasters, and they shouted me out a long time ago before, too. As I said, it's a big, big history. But... I had the MTV Music Generator, so I was messing around with it, and basically I I was doing, um, let's call it vaporware video game music, basically video game music that are concepts, but there's really nothing in the works or anything, but I'm pretty sure everybody did that. When you kid growing up, you made your own video games, designed them. Well, I did that too, but I took it a step further by actually composing video games, uh, composing music for video games made up, so... That's what I did on the MTV Music Generator, and then when I separated from Ghetto Records, instead of just doing video game music on the generator, I started making beats on there to translate um, from what I was doing in the studio to the generator. So I made a bunch of beats. So I already had the October game done long before the MC contest. We went to Peoria, Illinois, won the MC contest, and after that, I was like, well... And here's, here's what happened, too. I had the tracks already made in the generator, so I took, I recorded the beats onto a CD. That was, like I said, before computers became commonplace and you downloaded WAV files and snap when you had to burn stuff. I burnt all the music on a CD, took it to the studio, recorded my vocals over it. The engineer there mixed it, brought out my debut album, and the debut album made the rounds. People loved it. I'm thinking, okay, this is no-brainer right here. Now, this isn't knocking the studio, because the studio, and I'm pretty sure you're well aware that in the early 2000s, 
I mean, equipment wasn't cheap, but it wasn't as expensive as it was in the early 90s or 80s and so on. We had to have the big boards and everything at the studio. So basically, um, the fam the studio I was at, Ghetto Records, the family used to be backup dance for Parliament Funk, uh, Funkadelic, and they saved money from being on the road, from doing shows at Parliament Funkadelic, got studio equipment and so on and so forth, probably somewhere in tens of thousands of dollars, maybe $20,000. And I'm thinking, okay, I recorded my debut album here, and it sounded good, so it should be a no-brainer that ICP and Psychopathic, they got a $100,000 studio, the uh, Lotus Pine. This should be a no-brainer. I'll do the same thing I did with my debut album. I recorded on the CD, took it to the studio, thinking it, it's a win-win situation. I just, I already had it made anyway, so I, I, I added a couple of tracks on there. So I, I get there, and this is my first time working with Fritz the Cat. Now, when I was working with Ghetto Records, the engineer there, shout out to James Alias, he's another uh, kind of invisible figure in the wicked shit, but he has handprints all over it, though, and I, and I can explain why later on. So. James worked with me before. He know he knew what to do, how to get the best out of me. And when I brought some of my music that, that I composed, he would tell me that, okay, this snare right here, that snare don't sound good. You might want to change that snare. You might want to bring this kick up. He, he was pretty much critiquing and helping me try to get the most out of music I did with my debut, Sense of a Nature. But when I got the um, Lotus Pod, Fritz never worked with me before, so I'm thinking maybe Fritz was thinking he was getting pumped or something like that. Maybe a jump out of higher up. So he probably was like, well, you know what? I just get a paycheck. I do the best I can. Here we are. So I recorded that, and I brought the CD there, and he told me that there was an issue with the audio on the CD and that everything had to be a wave files. Now, back then, my audio knowledge then wasn't all that great because I... I didn't really understand the 44.100 file waves or any of that, whatever. My homeboy James did. He told me that, you know, when you put audio on the CD, it should be a wave file anyway. But he said that he could make the transfer of files, no problem. Just bring um, the music over there, he'll do it, and I can take it back to the studio. Now, in the infinite wisdom of my manager, may he rest in peace, or ex-manager, uh, Infinite wisdom, he got a little beside himself and arrogant. And he was saying, he we had an argument about that. He said he doesn't know how somebody, because at the time, Ghetto Records went out the building, they moved all the equipment back to where he was staying at. They're, they were staying at the grandmother house because they were going to get ready to move out of Saturday. His infinite wisdom, he was saying that he doesn't know how somebody who is who got a studio in a grandmother's basement going to tell millionaires and people with a million-dollar studio how to do this and everything. So instead of just letting James do his thing and James knew what he was doing. He'd been doing music in a studio since the um, early 90s. He knew what he was doing. But um, I'm not going to mention the manager name because I might say something not so kind, but I, I try to keep it kind. He hey, he can't he's not here to defend himself or give his side of the story and everything. So I just try to keep it positive in this aspect. But in this regard right here, he um disparaged the thought process of James taking the music and making putting the waves on the disc and giving me the disc and taking it back to the lotus spot. So he said instead of doing that, he was gonna take the PS2 because you could play the music generator on a PS2 too. He was going to take his PS2 up to the Lotus Pod and just get an AV cables, 
uh, from the back of the PS2 hooked it up there. And I guess when Fritz seen that, this is what I'm guessing, because I wasn't there for that conversation. JB was, and he said they end up playing football at the Lotus Pod and everything on the PS2 he brought. But I'm thinking, Fritz probably was thinking, I don't seriously get a punk. This is not This is not happening. They're bringing a freaking PS2. Are you kidding me? Okay, whatever. I just do the best I can to call it a day and everything. So what happened was the audio quality wasn't up to snuff that it was with Sins of an Angel. Hunting season dropped. And the reason why I went from being called an October game to hunting season was initially I explained to um, Jump Steady and Alex and Abbott that was it possible I could drop October game? When no other releases were coming out, the only thing that was happening in October was Halloween. But the, they that, they were gearing up that year for the Wraith and the Wraith release party, so nothing was coming out leading up to then. Can I get October and drop um, October game? So they say October was kind of out of bounds because of Halloween, a few other things going on. So I couldn't call it the October game because when it dropped in January, it was in October. It would make sense, October game in January, so I was like, you know what, I'll change the name to Hunt Season, whatever. Hunt Season got released in January, and Jump State was telling me it was moving a lot of units. Initially, it was selling like, like wildfire, but then it started slowing down. And I'm thinking, okay, it, it peaked at around a little over a thousand, so maybe a little more and everything to slow down. And then... Uh, the contract that I had with Psychopath was for a year, a year to year end. I got it in August. And it was going to end in August, what happened. So my contract was up with Psychopathic. I performed at the Acid Rain Tour, got the crowd hyped. So I guess Rob seen that like, well, okay, hunt season didn't do what we wanted to do, but he still, the crowd loves him. So we put him out together. And I'm thinking I'm going to perform um, some, probably during the day or probably toward the evening. What they didn't tell me was that I was headlining night number one. Nobody told me that. Until it was time to actually go perform, I'm like, okay, let me look at the artist list here, who's going first. And at the top of the list, at such and such time at night, I was last on there, Be Sinister. I was a mystery guest. I was like, oh, I'm headlining. We were nervous. I was sweating bullets, everything, because we were standing in the backstage area, and this was before Bill Bill took over the duties of CEO of Psychopathic when he was on one of the stage hands backstage along with Nate or I forgot who he was with, but Bill was running the stage area backstage. So uh, Bill said, was I ready? We was about to go on. And you can hear thou, ooh, you've been together, haven't you? Yep, we both have. Yeah, so yeah, so you you see when it's the top of the night, how big that how thick that crowd get? Mm -hmm. Oh, that crowd was enormous, just huge, and all you heard was ICP, ICP, and I'm thinking, oh good lord, we go out there. I hope they know that ICP ain't coming out there right now because I don't want to get pelted with a bunch of stuff. I'm thinking, oh god, no, it's not ICP, but the crowd juggalos were chanting ICP, so. It was time to go on. They played my intro music that I normally have, four shows and everything. The crowd erupted with cheers. And I'm thinking, y'all do know this is not ICP, right? I hope y'all know that's not ICP. If y'all chugglos, y'all know that's not ICP. So then it was time to go out there, and we went out there and everything. The crowd was cheering. I'm thinking, okay, at least they know it's not ICP. And the crowd was cheering, and then they were looking. So we started performing, and here is the kicker. And I think Lars should remember this too. Um, night one, 
when LSD were headlining this year's gathering, basically they, they got hit with a noise ordinance. And basically the music was loud probably before 11.30, whatever, bumping, booming throughout the area. And then after that time slot hit, then the music got quieted down and muted. And it sounded like you were performing inside of a venue versus performing outside in a large area with big booming sound. That's what happened to me too. I got hit with a noise orange. When the music came on, loud and everything, and once the time flipped, the music got muted down and quieted. And basically people were like, uh, they were chanting, turn it up, turn it up. But they couldn't because of the noise ordinance. I was like, oh my God. So I was the first victim of the noise ordinance that would probably hit uh, the gathering throughout the years to come there. Uh, because this was the first outdoor event. And I was the first one to get hit with the noise ordinance where the music, it would have boom bang, but the noise ordinance brought it down. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting how, it's interesting how like 2002, 2003, mm -hmm. it's like we didn't have the social media tools we had to build our own brand. You couldn't create your own Spotify campaign. And like yep. also to have the brand connected where people knew that like if ICP and Jump Steady co-signed you and loved you, it meant that it had authenticity. So you, so all these things going in the pre like web two social media world, you had going for you to give you all this momentum. And it's interesting how you recovered from things like this that weren't per ideal. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, it's so much, it's so much of it was contextual and these, and it was such an amazing era that you were part of that, that you used to launch your career. And it's interesting that then they would have you back to host the MC battle and like keep you as part of the family. Dozen you played a lot, time. right? Oh yeah. They had me back. Matter of fact, here's where another deal came into play with psychopath records. I think I told you about it. It was, 2005 now, 2003 after the gathering, they um, let me come check out Hollow Wicked and then that was pretty much any dealers with Psychopathic and I struck out on my own. But 2005 though, that was when it was on fire again. I, I, I will say as far as hunt season, it did not go over well. I'm pretty sure you ran across that. It, it didn't go over well. No worries there. Bounce back to recover from it. And what happened in 2005 bounced back so good because I re-released my debut, but uh, but this was where I got behind the boards myself and was learning the ins and outs of uh, mixing, fading, so on and so forth with um, doing music and being behind the boards. So I did Morningstar's Soul of the Beast, released that. That had a lot bigger acclaim than Stands of an Angel and Hunting Season. A lot of people loved it. So so many people loved it. In fact, that I got the attention of Interscope for A and R there. The A and R wanted us to match their budget to, and they would. I, I forgot what he said he was going to do with it, what have you. But he wanted to know did we have like ten thousand dollars, and they match ten thousand, and they'll go from there. But. We didn't have ten thousand dollars in the pocket like that. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, we love to have ten thousand, but uh, that's not gonna happen. So that slipped through the cracks. But it also got the attention of um, Geffen Records. Allie Lee was Allie Lee. She was the A and R for Geffen at the time, and she listened to the uh, Soul of the Beast album. But it got her attention. That don't necessarily mean it kept her attention, but at least it got their attention. Um. So how Psychopathic came back into this was because the manager that we, the new manager, Kelly Millionakis, I think that's the name, or Millionis, that was his name, Kelly Millionis, for Stu String Entertainment. He, he uh, drove back and forth between Detroit, made phone calls, everything, and 
got me into the Detroit Music Awards. And I was there for best hip hop artist. I guess psychopathic seen this and they seen all the noise I was making on my own without them. Because a lot of artists, you know, if they get their dream and it doesn't go through their pipe, just only go for a little bit, quit, find something else. But I was like, no, music with or without psychopathy was still something I wanted to do. We kept it going. So 2005, Psychopathic gave us the call again. There was no, there was a underground psychos at the time, but they got a hold of me um, outside of what they were doing because what happened, and I learned two years after the fact, was Psychopathic going to sign me back again. At the uh, at the time, the roster was um, Eshawn, Twisted, ABK, Blaze, ICP. I think Zug Island had left at that point, so it was those five acts. And Psychopathic want to sign me at the time because of what I was doing with the Detroit Music Awards and opening up for Ludacris and getting attention of a lot of A&Rs from Soul of the Beast. We got an email from Psychopathic saying, can we perform uh, for Esham's A1 Yola release party? Now, here's what happened in 2004 that made me a little wary about it. In 2004, uh, there was an online chat thing. I, I think it was... Uh, Something that Bottle J put together, a lot of juggalos could go in, chat online with him, and what happened. Now, I did an interview in 2002 where one of the questions was posed, you know, after I get through dropping my debut on Psychopathic, what was next for me? I told him outside of releasing Pale Horse and working on my own content, hopefully I'll become part of some of the super group projects on there, like Psychopathic Riders, The Dark Lotus, and if I become part of Psychopathic Riders, I'll go by the name <laughs> Tom Hammer and everything. Just... Just stuff, just theoretical stuff. Nothing solid, not saying I was part of anything with that. But a juggalo in this online chat was um, talking about the and said, uh, is it true B. Simmons to say he was part of psychopathic riders, this, that, which was, it was clarified years later. Bala J was like, what? B. Simmons said that? Oh, he's a whack-ass artist and everything, and no, he's not part of psychopathic. I was like, oh my, what the? Yeah, the underground that they supported me on an online form called horrorcore.com. Big under one of the biggest underground uh acts uh sites for wicked shit. Um they they was they was like going in on Violent J because of what he said. Like I said, it was a, it was a misunderstanding. Believe me, we're we're real cool now. Misunderstanding. Um just the interview I did got misconstrued and everything. Somebody ran with it, Violent J didn't take two count, but that was 2004. And I haven't heard nothing of Psychopathic Volunteer and nothing since then, because I'm still doing my own thing. We get this email out the blue from Psychopathic, want me to come open for A1 Yoda Eshawn's release party. And I'm thinking, okay, last I remember, Volunteer said I was a whack-ass artist in FB Sinister, and I'm thinking, okay, uh, do they plan on bringing me to this party and, like, beat me down or something? What's going on? We didn't get no other words from them or anything. And I was a little cautious. I was like, you know what? Let's go see what it's all about and everything. Not knowing what was going on. Nobody gave me any insight, anything. We was just hoping, well, I was hoping for the most part, I wouldn't be dragged into a room, beat down or whatever by the artist and label because of what happened with that. But it wasn't about that, though. Here's what happened. I get to the release party. The first person I see is Rude Boy. Rude Boy has a big smile on his face from ear to ear grinning, and he says, Joe want to talk to you. Now, I guess this is something big if they refer to him as Joe. They ain't say follow Joe or anything like that. Uh, Rudy just said, Joe want to talk to you. 
I'm thinking in my head, oh, Joe wanna he wanna trade hands and everything. If Joe wanna talk to me, rude boys follow. Maybe they set me up to get jumped or whatever. I don't know, but whatever, I'll go with it and everything. So there was another uh, employee there. His name was uh, Spider, security for Alex Abbas at the time. And I see him, and he has a big smile on his face, and he's going to say, hey, Joe want to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, all right, what's going on? I keep hearing Joe want to talk to me, Joe want to talk to me. So I found see Joe. Me and him talking. He asking what's going on with my career. Oh, you know, we're doing this. He says he's seen that I'm nominated for Detroit Music Award, and I got this going on, got that going on. I'm like, yeah, uh, Later this week, we're opening up for Ludacris, um, opened up for Bone Thugs, and well, Busy Bone in particular, did this, did that, and everything. But yeah, I'm hoping to move forward and what have you, because I remember the conversation at the time. He said he wanted to get as big as where 50 Cent was at the time. At the time in 2005, 50 Cent, all the game, 50 Cent, G-Unit, they was all over and everything. And Violent J was hoping his aspirations would land psychopathic as big as uh, 50 Cent at the time and everything. So we were just talking, and I'm thinking, okay, this is what Joe wanted to talk to me about. Like, it was just a normal conversation. I went and uh, opened up the release party and everything, and it, it didn't click at the time. Retrospectively, now that I think about it, uh, I wish I would have had some better, uh, better team around. But it didn't register that I was the only artist they picked to open up for Eshan. Everybody, everybody was there. Twisted, ABK, Lavelle. Everybody was there, but I was the only artist opening up for Esham, and then it was more of a celebratory congratulations to Esham releasing A1 Yola. What I didn't know, I mean, because Violent Jake came out on stage after that, talked to the Juggalos, brought me out on stage for a picture, say, hey, Juggalos, what y'all think? Be sinister, this, that, and the other. Juggalos cheering, yeah, woo, and all that. And I'm thinking, okay, but didn't hear nothing else about it. I gave Violent Jake my number. I'm like, yeah, you know. Give me a ring, area code 989, whatever the number was at the time, and we could talk more and what have you. So then I enjoyed the rest of the show, went back with my homeboy Defect, didn't hear nothing else after that. Like, two years had passed, and here's the kicker. Oh, my God, here's the kicker right here. It was probably mid-2007. I, I get a call from my mom, and I'm talking to my mom, and she's just screaming in the phone, just Boy, blah, 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 this. And I'm like, Mom, what's going on? What, 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 what are you screaming for? What you talking about? Now, my mom lived in Detroit at the time. And uh, the security guard, Spider, he went uh, to somewhere. Some, they were out somewhere, and my mom was with my niece, and Spider was there, too. And they were sitting down somewhere, and they didn't know each other. They were just sitting next to each other. It was random and everything. But what happened was they got to talking. Um Spider was talking about he worked for Psychopathic Records. He was the um, security there, and he worked with a lot of musical artists. My mom told him, oh, yeah, my sons are in music. My oldest is Mac the Jacka, and I got a young, younger one, V Sinister. And Spider said, V Sinister? That's your son? And he was going on about, oh, Psychopathic loves him, and Psychopathic want to work with him, and they wanted to pick him up, but his, your, his manager messed his deal up and everything. And that's what my mom was telling me. I was like, wait a minute, hold on, wait, what you mean? What happened? What it turns out at the A1 Yola release party, what I didn't know and what my manager didn't make me aware of who was there at the time was in a backstage area while I was out mingling with the Juggalos trying to network and everything. My manager was in the background area talking to Psychopathic. Psychopathic approached him and was saying, 
yeah, we want to pick up these sinister. We think this, that, and the other, and everything. And here's what my manager said. Now, I, I, I would never for the life of me, may he rest in peace, but I would never for the life of me understand why. He told them, if you want to get these sinister, you got to bring me aboard too. And then that pretty much shut down all talk right there and everything. Deal never happened. My manager never told me that at all. Didn't say nothing about it. Spider told my mom about that, that my manager ran his mouth. Oh, it gets, it gets better. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, you, if you would see my, my face was red, smoke coming out of my ears, I would hot like, he did what they say, what? They wanted to sign me and my manager did what? My mom was mad. Oh, oh, I was mad too. Here goes another part. Now, do you know who Prozac is? Or ever yep. heard of Prozac? Yeah, Prozac was in Chicago with Mike Clark and my brother, like I said, my brother's a big artist too, Matt the Jack and shout out to Matt the Jack and Bank Boys. My brother, uh, he was in Chicago with his producer, G. Pierce. Another shout out to G. Pierce worked on everybody, Dayton Family, Dangerous Mind Soundtracks, big producer. He got platinum plaques. My brother rolled with him at the time. And G. Pierce and my brother were in Chicago because Prozac and Mike Clark, I guess, were working with Twisted. Come to find out, it was for that one song that was on Prozac's uh, uh, Hitchcock and Hip Hop that had Tech Nine on it and everything. They was working on that, and G was there, so they had a random conversation. And it turns out that Prozac got wind of it too, and he told my brother that psychopaths were about to sign me, but my manager ran his mouth backstage and blew the deal. And my brother told me that, and I was like, oh, are you serious? <clears throat> and then a third party told me this, uh, Prozac, you remember Bedlam, don't you? Yeah. Uh, ever yeah, heard of Bedlam? Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, shout out to Bedlam. I uh, co-produced uh, their uh, Chemical Imbalance Volume 2 with two, two songs on Shock Treat. Uh, no, three songs on Shock Treat. Anyway. Bedlam, it was Staples, Kurt D, The Madness, and Prozac. Now, they had split at that time, they would have you, but Kurt still rolled with Prozac, though. And I, I was doing a show at Jamestown Hall in Saginaw, and Kurt D was there. I'm talking to Kurt D, and his raspy voice, oh, D, D, oh, my God, D, oh. And I was talking to him, he said, B, they, oh, Joe, Bill, they love you as psychopath, oh, but, oh, your manager, he messed you up, yeah, they want to sign you, but, oh, and I was like, oh, are, are you, this is the third time I'm hearing this, and basically, from that point on, I, I couldn't talk to my, uh, my manager, may he rest in peace, um, I, I couldn't talk to him and everything, he was wondering, was I mad at him, man, what happened? I didn't talk to him for almost a decade, and I mean, you can understand why, right? Like, if you blew a deal like that, you could at least tell me what was going on. But he didn't. Even, he didn't even let me know. Joe didn't come out directly asking me. Did I want to? If Joe would have asked me directly, oh, it would have been no question. And let's go to the Lotus Pot, or let's go to psychopathic offices tomorrow after the Ishame Winyola release party. Let's talk turkey. Let's make it happen. I would have brought my manager with. And pretty much anybody who know me knows I'm loyal to a fault. My manager would have been sitting good. The uh, road manager who was responsible for getting me to and fro from shows would have been good. My hype man, part of the tandem defect would have been good. Everybody would have been good from this. 
because I would have brought everybody aboard because I already I've been on the road with Psychopathic before and I know they need people to get the artists to and fro. They can't do the heads can't do everything themselves. So they got people doing that. They would have been my people to get me to the shows or get me to where I needed to get to to make that happen. But he said that if they wanted to be sinister, they need to take him too. And what purpose was he really going to serve except just to help me along? But he probably could have served a purpose. He didn't need to express outright that he had to come along too. Like it was a package deal. It would have been like, okay, I will talk to be sinister, let him know, and we and we could come up there and make it happen. It would have happened, but... No. It's like you, you think about the first Dark Lotus, Mars... They had that weird drama, but he had those the, his other label deal that like that prevented them from signing him, right? So they're like yeah. sensitive to the fact that like, oh, maybe V Sinister has a three sixty degree man deal with your manager, and they're like, well, maybe oh, we don't know about this, yeah. but it's not true, man. I, I feel you, like <laughs> that's so uh, that's such like an old school sort of like situation, and yeah, man, oh, like man. I'd be mad too. But it also sounds like. Things worked out in that you've been putting out a lot of stuff, man. The Natural Born Killer stuff is dope. You stayed busy. Like, what have you been, like, yeah, let's, I wanted to just, like, wrap up talking about what you've been doing now and new stuff. Anything you have down the pipeline, because you are a very prolific artist. You're doing it with or without a, a label, which is great. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. MBK. Let me say real quick, all, I want to shout out all the members. Myself, the Zodiac Killer. Um, Carl Grossman, Bullham, Ed Kemper, Andre Chikatilo, Ted Bundy, Ed Gein, Charles Starkweather, Carol Bugatti, Jim Jones, and Jack the Ripper, and also uh, Andrew Berkowitz, too. All of NBK. I'll just say this. We're working on another album uh, album called The Brotherhood, The Final Halloween. Don't know if it's going to make October. Too many technical difficulties, but that's the next NBK album. Oh, also, Richard, oh, I know Rita was going to get me if I didn't say Richard Kuklinski and also John Muhammad. They're also an NBK too. I see the look on your face like, hold on, whoa, what's this all about with all the serial killer things? It's a project that was akin and talked about in legendary underground circles, almost too dark lotus with that. It's supposed to be a super group project, but... We kept running the mishaps um, with the creation of it over the years. Then it kind of died down. And then in 2020, I was like, well, we're at a better place now that we can get this done and what have you. So uh, I called up some people saying, hey, you want to get NBK going again? I promise you NBK is coming. Um, I also got some singles called the Key Singles. And they're pretty much remixes of a lot of stuff I did in the past that I perform at shows and also new material too. They're supposed to be monthly singles, but technical difficulties and life got in the way. But we're going to catch up though. But as far as the next big project, I had Morningstar, I had Pale Horse, Next Month's Eat House Concerto, a triple out, not a double out, triple out, Heaven, Hell, Purgatory, three discs. I know nobody buy this anymore, so it's more for the collectors. We're going to stream <laughs> it too, but it's for collectors as well too. That's the next big project outside of NBK. Uh, Eternal Worlds, my first debut novel, science fantasy, science fiction novel taking place on another world in another galaxy of um, lots of monsters, rings, magic, wizardry, technology. The first novel's already written. We're editing it right now, working on the second novel. It's called Eternal Worlds, The Quest for Love. And that one will probably debut next year, 
the fourth quarter. Because it would have debuted this year, but we got too much going on. We want to make sure we do this right. Take our time with it. So next year, fourth quarter, Eternal Worlds. It could be worse. Comic strip. Comic strip. Love doing comic strips. I'm an artist by trade, but between music and art, they're both equal. I don't love one more than the other, but I do comic strips. I'm in the fourth season of It Could Be Worse. Think of it as the adult version of Peanuts mixed with Bloom Count. We're going to resume season four next year, March. I try to do it every March because that's when I debuted the first season sometime way back when. Fourth season. Um, next year, 2023, March. It Could Be Worse. Soldier Blade. Before music, before comic strips, comic books. Soldier Blade, we're bringing out um, a four-issue mini-series and hopefully do two issues next year. Just stay just stay with the social media, and we'll get you the information on Soldier Blade. After that, Fitness Fantasy. This one, this is how big of a video game book and music lover I am. Fitness Fantasy is kind of a take on Final Fantasy, but it's like Final Fantasy with fitness, but... That one's kind of you can't really you can't really uh, pick that up nowhere. You can buy plant meal plans and training plans and everything. So I make those, but I resume. I uh, had videos going for a minute, and that had a big following too. But life gets in the way. But resuming fitness fantasy again. You can find it on Instagram, Frankenstein Fitness or Fitness Fantasy. Just put it in search. It'll come up. Oh, I could all forget. Video game music, love video game music. This is why I'm doing video game anything and music. Video game music. Vigilante Strike, the hostage crisis. We always started uh, promoting for that, but I still got to finish composing that. And what that is, is just instrumental compositions of a vaporware video game. And again, vaporware is more or less theoretical idea of a video game, not nothing in a, not nothing in the make, but hey, if a company comes along and they like the idea of something, they do want to turn Vigilante Strike to a video game, oh, you better believe we're going to be behind that. But it's, Vigilante Strike is a beat em up like Streets of Rage, a Double Dragon, the final fight, and what have you. And what I want to, I guess what we can finish on, because I know you're out of time and everything, John Doom. This, I don't want to get to this, but I talk too much. I'm sorry, hopefully another time. But John Doom, video game music. This one is a, a six-song EP, Passion Project of mine, because, again, I love, love, love video game music. Love it. Been listening to it since, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not going to say I'm the first person to do it, but when 8-bit was 8-bit or 16-bit and everything, I was listening to Ninja Gaiden, Super Mario, Gradius, Jackal. Um, Life Force. List goes on and on and on. I love video game music. So what I'm doing here is it's a six-song EP going through my life through the 90s up until my current um, career and everything, current life, and I'm spitting over either refashioning the reimagined video game beats or I'm sampling them and putting drums and everything else under them. And yeah, that's, that's John Doom EP. That's so dope. I'm so excited for that. That's going to be awesome. Me too. I can see this place right here. I can't wait to get it out there. A lot of nerdcore artists have rapped about video games, sampled video games, but very few can say they produced an album on a video game system, but V Sinister did. You're an artist, brother. Yes. Where I can did. we find you on social media to see this new flavor coming out? You can find me in. Uh, as far as being a person without the uh, artistry, 
Benny Billsy. I'm on Facebook. You can find me on there. You can add me on there. Chop it up with me. Instagram. You can find me on uh, Road to Soldier Blade. Be Sinister. Fitness Fantasy. Or it should be Fitness Fantasy or Frankenstein Fitness. And I think that's it. You can also find me on the Facebook uh, Stormwood uh, Stormwood page. It could be Worst page. Be Sinister page. Hey, come, that's where you get all the information from. Be Sinister on Facebook. You want to know about John Doom, NBK, this, that, the other. It starts at the Be Sinister Facebook page, and it will also make its way over to the Instagram page, too. I'm also on TikTok, too, under Stormwood Villain. Uh, yeah, Stormwood Villain. I'm on there sometimes, but I got content on there, but I'm still trying to find my way around TikTok. I'm on uh, Twitter, at Be Sinister. You can find me on there. I know I forget. I, oh, I don't want to forget this site. www.thecineverse.com. That's S-I-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. Cineverse.com. You can find all Be Sinister related merch, music, everything there, and also NBK there too. V Sinister, you're an absolute underground legend, a true artist. Uh, you know, not just a rapper, a composer, producer, uh, you know, visionary, dude. All your projects, they're all connected. So many dope concepts. And it was amazing to hear these stories and get into your mind a little bit. Thank you for being on Hatchet Chat. We can't thank you enough, man. And uh, whoop, whoop, and much clown love. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Whoop, whoop. <laughs>